This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver City Council unanimously approved a new city law last night that does more than ever to shield undocumented immigrants from deportation. Critics say it amounts to a sanctuary policy. This new ordinance is a compromise between Mayor Michael Hancock and some city council members who wanted him to go even further. CPR's Allison Sherry was at the meeting and joins me. Hi, Allison. Hey, Ryan. What's Hancock been doing and why was this a compromise? Well, Ryan, if you'll remember, Hancock was has been in kind of a cat-and-mouse game with ICE at the Denver courthouses for the past several months. ICE officials stepped up enforcement, and Hancock asked them to back down. ICE said they like courthouses for making arrests, in part because people have been screened for weapons and it's safer for federal agents. Oh. So Hancock then took several steps in hopes of shielding undocumented immigrants in those courthouses. He reduced sentences for petty crimes so immigrants don't get flagged for deportation. He allowed people to plea minor traffic offenses online. And city officials are even allowing some people to wait in a private building across the street in the courthouse so they weren't in the hallways in view of ICE. But that wasn't enough for some city council members. What did they want? Well, specifically two city council members, Paul Lopez, who represents a West Side neighborhood with a lot of undocumented immigrants, and Robin Kanich, who's elected at large, wanted the mayor to do more to oppose the Trump administration's crackdown on undocumented immigrants. Lopez and Kanich wanted the mayor to specifically ban city officials in almost all cases from communicating with ICE at all on immigration enforcement. Hancock at the time said he was worried that a policy like that would put Denver out of compliance with just the little guidance that's been put out by the Department of Justice on sanctuary cities or, quote, sanctuary cities, and would have jeopardized federal funds to Denver police. Of course, is U.S. immigration and customs enforcement. And and so what happened? Well, the mayor and the city council got together and worked out a plan that was passed last night, which mostly has the support from the immigrant rights community. 32 people signed up to speak in favor of the bill last night and zero against. But in the hallway before the vote, I was talking to some people and a few notable sort of advocates said they hoped that this was the beginning of the fight and not the end. This is Hans Meyer, a immigration attorney. This is not a bad start. This is a start that we need as a city to respond to the Trump administration, to respond to a nativist agenda, to respond to a mass deportation machine. And and this is not the end of these policies. These are the beginning of these policies. And so this is not everything immigrant rights activists wanted. Uh, Were they specific about what more they think the city should do? Well, specifically, one advocate I talked to, Corinne Rivera Fowler, told me she was disappointed the law allows deputies to continuing to, to continue notifying ICE agents before the jail releases people they're interested in. Rivera Fowler says she thinks once someone's done their time for whatever it was they were convicted of, a bar fight or whatever, their punishment should be done. They shouldn't then face deportation. But the new law prohibits city employees, including probation and community corrections, from helping with immigration enforcement, except in some cases, including if there is a warrant. It also bans city employees from collecting information on immigration or citizen status. But there is still that notification piece that she's worried about. Got it. And what were Lopez and Kanish worried about? 
Lopez and Kanish talked a lot about this as a public safety measure. They're very careful not to call this a sanctuary bill. They say this is about public safety and that people are actually not reporting crimes in some Denver neighborhoods because they're so worried about police and ICE working together. One study found crime reporting in Denver among Latinos has fallen by 12 percent over the last few months. So the city council members say they wanted to spell out specifics so people knew that Denver police and sheriffs, for the most part, were not working in cahoots with federal immigration officials. And how does the Department of Justice feel about this? Well, I reached out to Justice yesterday uh, about what Denver was doing, and they said that, quote, when cities and states refuse to help enforce immigration laws, our nation is less safe, and that failure to deport aliens who are convicted for criminal offenses puts whole communities at risk. You know, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been really outspoken recently that cities in violation of his, quote, sanctuary policies could lose federal crime fighting money. But there seems to be some confusion about what that means. Uh, Earlier this month, he singled out four cities, Albuquerque, Baltimore, San Bernardino and Stockton, California. But those cities at the time were confused about what made them different than their counterparts. So and for his part, Hancock has said this has had this to say about losing federal funding. But the reality is we may lose funding, and we understood that going forward. But at the end of the day, we'll stand by our values because when this administration is over, that's what we have, our values. But he certainly hasn't made friends everywhere from these decisions. Over the weekend, a state lawmaker from Colorado Springs called on the Trump administration to, quote, punish Denver for flouting federal immigration law. State Representative Dave Williams sent Mayor Hancock a letter, according to the Colorado Springs Gazette, saying, your support for this so-called public safety ordinance is troubling, to say the least. Well, thank you for the update. Thanks. That is CPR's Allison Sherry. From firefighters performing water rescues to volunteers serving meals, dozens of Coloradans are now in Texas helping survivors of Hurricane Harvey. The Red Cross is heavily represented. Bill Fortune is spokesman for the Colorado-Wyoming region. The vast majority are working in our shelters, and they are providing direct support to those people that have evacuated. We have health services people at Red Cross. Nurses are in play. Uh, and they'll be helping with the minor medical or for those that have special needs. Um, we have our shelter workers who are simply making sure that people have the things they need, making sure the bathrooms are clean and safe, and, and all of those things. But it's not just people who need help. So do animals. Jim Baller rescues pets. He has for a long time. He responded to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Baller told me helping a cat or dog evacuate is often what gets people to leave flooded homes. There's a very strong connection between people and their pets. And they're very reluctant to evacuate because a lot of times they don't know where to take their pets Uh, When they leave, they may not have a relative that they can go stay with. A lot of hotels don't accept pets. And so what they do is they'll stay behind. And my understanding is you're working right alongside teams that are rescuing people. We we integrate with the human response and rescue teams. That way they can focus on dealing with the human victims. Uh, We're able to go in and bring those people's animals out with them. So it reduces their stress. It reduces the animal's stress. It makes things go a lot more smoothly so that we're not putting uh, as many people's lives into jeopardy and creating more victims. Take me to a rescue, uh, one that went perhaps particularly well, say, during Hurricane Katrina. What is it like uh, on the ground or on the water in this case? 
it's very surreal as far as being able to boat down Main Street, USA, where all you see are the tops of cars. We have houses that have two stories or whatever else. The animals will migrate to the highest point. We've had situations where we've had a family of four with their three dogs that were on a second-story balcony down in New Orleans that we were going into. They were small dogs, Pomeranians, and we were able to motor right up to their second-story balcony. And working with the human search and rescue teams, they were able to get put the humans in uh, their boat. We had crates and cages that we put their dogs into our boat. And in most of these cases, the entire family includes the dog, the cat, the goldfish. That is part of their family. How difficult Um, is it to rescue pets? I'm thinking of cats that may not like to be picked up and dogs that are trained to bark at an intruder. Uh, It strikes me as a potentially dangerous job. You know, surprisingly enough, animals are, are very intuitive. During these events, even aggressive dogs, they may initially warn you off or at least warn you that this is my property, even though that their property may be four or five feet underwater. But once our responders get up there, we start talking to them. We're very competent, very well-trained, that we can calm those animals down. Cats are a little bit trickier. Cats like to hide. Dogs, they come out and they'll greet you one way or another, but the cats hide. So a lot of times we have to go in under the bed, behind water heaters, in dark places. What happens then once you've rescued them? So if the family is headed to a shelter that doesn't take pets, for instance, or they're staying in a hotel that doesn't, do they separate at this point or what? In those situations, now the Red Cross has become very proactive in helping to set up what we call co-located shelters, which are shelters where the the human owner and their pet can both go and be in close proximity to each other. It helps with keeping the pet calmer, it also reduces the owner's stress. But in those situations where that is not feasible, uh, we work with the local jurisdictions to set up evacuation shelters specifically for the animals. And we'll make sure that the owner knows exactly where these shelters are. And we have identifications. We'll take pictures of the pet with the owner so that they can reclaim their pets. Now, when we set up these shelters, we bring in veterinarian teams and sheltering teams. Do you rescue pets that are on their own, or is it just when they're with their owners? No, there's a lot of times that we will pick up those animals that are astray because we know that they were probably owned. It's very obvious with the dog you know, swimming across the street that has a collar on. Over the years, we have dealt with all kinds of animals, everything from helping to evacuate zoos to helping livestock producers with rounding up their stock, their cattle, their hogs. We even deal with the encroachment of wildlife. Wild animals get displaced and end up in downtown suburbia or whatever, Main Street, uh, USA, and they can cause a lot of problems. So our responders are uh, well-trained and well-versed in dealing with all species of animals. I'm thinking about concerns you may have as you head down to to Texas about snakes and potentially gators in in the streets. Um, There's always that possibility. Um, I actually lived in Houston. I currently live just north of Denver, but I lived in Houston for about 11 years, so I'm very familiar with the wildlife that we can encounter in that area, whether it's an alligator or whether it's um, snakes or things like that. 
they're just as scared as the companion animals, and they're not looking to hurt anybody. They're looking to get away from us. They just want a safe place to hide. But we just have to be very cautious. And there are those times where they get themselves into predicament where we're going to have to go in and remove them out of somebody's backyard swimming pool or they get caught into somebody's yard or whatever. And we'll work very closely with uh, the State Parks and Wildlife Fish and Game Commission and get those animals back and relocated into a more appropriate setting as well. Well, before we leave, um, why do you do this work? It's not for the money. It's for the joy on somebody's face that their house has been completely demolished. Um, All their family heirlooms have been lost in the disaster, but you're able to reunite them with their pet cat or their pet dog or, or their pet guinea pig. And the joy on their face, it gives them a sense of normalcy. Thank you so much, and um, best of luck to you down there. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's our pleasure. Jim Baller is an animal rescue expert with the nonprofit Code 3 Associates based in Longmont. His team of about 30 will be at work in Houston by tomorrow morning. Solar Roast Coffee in Pueblo uses the sun's power to slow roast its coffee beans. Solar power is also heating up sales. The state recently named the company a Colorado business to watch. A worker measures out scoops of raw coffee beans from huge burlap bags into the top of the roaster. Mike Hartkopf and his brother David founded this roasting company a decade ago. Mike explains how to know when the beans are just right. She's looking and listening for the first pop of the bean, and you're looking for the, the bean is opening up. It's becoming more even in color. Uh, the flat side of the bean now is starting to pop open, so you're getting some of the chaff coming out. There you go. I heard it. And when the moment's right, the worker releases the beans from the roaster. Once the roasted coffee beans cool down, they're bagged and labeled. This approach seems to be working. Solar Roast Coffee's wholesale business rose 866% in the last four years. Mike Hartkop is here in the studio with me, and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Very basic question. What does roasting coffee do? I know that my coffee tastes good when it's roasted, but what does it do? Well, the roasting process uh, enables us to be able to grind the bean because green coffee is rock hard. And so roasting basically increases the size of the coffee, makes it less dense so you can grind it. And it also creates like the carbony flavor, the, the sweetness will come out in the roasting process. What would coffee taste like if it weren't roasted? Like grass, not okay. very good. <laughs> <laughs> not something I want in the morning. No. You originally started out using the sun to directly heat the beans instead of making electricity. In fact, I understand your brother created the first roaster using a broccoli strainer and a satellite dish covered with plastic mirrors. Why did you switch to producing solar power instead of that kind of direct solar relationship? Well, so much of my life was spent watching the clouds and the the monsoon down in Pueblo would come through. And at about three o'clock in the afternoon, we couldn't roast coffee anymore. And so as you can imagine, it's also cloudier in the winter, which also happens to be the busiest time for coffee drinking. So 
it was real problematic. Uh, and I, I suppose uh, switching to solar power uh, on the grid means that you can go to a traditional grid power as well if there's clouds or something like that? Yeah, so it's it's a hybrid roaster. Uh, we are able to preheat the machine using natural gas, and then we're also able to generate the electricity. So once the machine's up to heat, then we're generating the electricity for the solar electric um, aspect of the device. Okay, so you're not so subject to the whims of the weather. No. Does being solar power connected... Um, change the flavor of the roast in any regard? Oh, for sure. The, our coffee roaster has a complete unique flavor profile, and it's because we have tried so hard to maintain all of our temperatures. So we have a lower temperature. We also recirculate our air in within the device and within the roaster. And so it's uh, a smoother, slow and low, like good barbecue, you know? Like good barbecue? Mm-hmm. Do you think that there there's, yeah, a connection between roasting coffee and good barbecuing? I think so. It's temperature and time equals quality, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And slow roasting means what exactly? Like how long? Well, our roast process will take about 30 minutes to roast a batch of beans, which is astronomical. And I've been laughed at by other coffee roasters across the country because the traditional uh, drum coffee roaster uh, will take 15 minutes. And some roasters are kicking off a batch in about nine minutes for a batch of coffee. What drove the interest in the solar power in the first place? Was there an environmental strain here? Well, we're from Oregon, and it just is something that you always think about as the environment. We recycle. um, We have uh, huge just recycling programs uh, and trying to look after the environment. So we started with that premises of, of why do we need to be burning gas to roast coffee? Why can't we do this differently? Uh, and it so happened that my brother's also kind of a mad scientist genius dude, so <laughs> yes, you, it helps. You do indeed describe uh, David as that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the inventor who cobbled the first solar roasting machines together for you. Yes, that's correct. How involved is he in the business now? Uh, now he, he's not really involved. He's my phone a friend when, when the machine breaks and I've got to figure out how to replace a part and, and what Granger account to use and that sort of thing. So the growth of the company has been really meteoric. How have uh, you made that happen? Uh, well, we've got great people working for us. Um, my best friend Dave Ray is just – he's a real promoter, probably the – the best sales guy you'll ever meet because you can make connections with people. Um, and we've just taken it, you know, the old-fashioned way, one client at a time, one step at a time. Pueblo Economic Development Corporation gave you some funding. How big do you think this could get? What What do you picture in the future? Well, we're just one step at a time. We don't have any delusions of grandeur, that's for sure. Um, we've been roasting from our shop for the last 10 years. Pedco enabled us to move our production downtown. And so for the last five years, we've just been just killing it because we can finally produce coffee at uh, a good a good capacity. Pedco is the Pueblo Economic Development Corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard you're using wooden barrels in your latest coffee. What's that all about? Oh, yeah, the barrel-aged coffee series. Um, it, it's really interesting that you can put green coffee into barrels that are from like the Holy Cross Abbey in Canyon City or um, a distillery up in Colorado Springs. We're starting to work with Breckenridge Distillery. And when you age green coffee beans in the barrels, it it pulls out the flavor from the barrel. So the coffee will take on the flavor of either wine or whiskey or rye whiskey, bourbon. And then we roast it and you've got 
both the most amazing flavor and the most confusing flavor because you're not sure if this is alcoholic or, or not alcoholic, and it's not, but it tastes like it should be. Part of your growth uh, is attributed to just being in more stores, like natural grocers picked you up, I think. Oh, yeah. Natural Grocers is, is a Colorado-based company, and they've just been amazing. They were the first ones to give us the green light to be able to sell coffee into these grocery stores. And so they just gave us a, a, a product number or a customer number, and we were able to go store to store, and now we're in probably 95 of their stores. We're actually the largest direct vendor into Natural Grocers Vitamin Cottage, and that was just one at a time. One decision can make a huge difference for a business. That's it. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Mike Hartkopf founded Solar Roast Coffee in Pueblo with his brother David 10 years ago now. It was recently named a Colorado company to watch. And there's a photo of one of their early solar roasters at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's hear music now that a Denver composer wrote for a unique orchestra in Mongolia. This piece is called Postcards to Mongolia. Thomas Blomster wrote it for the Morin Hur Ensemble, which is made up of traditional Mongolian instruments. Blomster traveled to Mongolia to conduct the premiere there. It took place in Ulaanbaatar, which happens to be a sister city to Denver, and this recording is from that concert. Blomster is the first composer from outside Mongolia to write for the ensemble, and he joins us now to talk about this collaboration. Welcome to the program. Thanks. I want to start with how you became aware of this group in the first place. You apparently woke up one night and wondered if there's a Mongolian orchestra. But, yeah. Well, I mean, why is that the kind of thing that wakes you up in the middle of well, the night? Well, it's it's more, uh, you know, I'm I'm awake and I can't get to sleep. And, and so, you know, you start Googling things and is there an orchestra in Kazakhstan? Or, so it happened to be Mongolia that night and I found out there's two orchestras in uh, Ulaanbaatar. And uh, so I friended him on Facebook and the relationships kind of developed from there. You are essentially on the hunt for global orchestras, it sounds like. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just curious. You know, I've, I grew up in a in a pretty kind of globally thinking as a percussionist studying with John Gallm at CU Boulder when I was a kid. And so, you know, just always been interested in other places in the world that way. And the music that they make and the instruments that they used – uh, fate sort of drew you and the orchestra together then. I guess the director visited Denver and met with some local arts groups. How how were you involved? Well, yeah, she's actually the uh, like the assistant executive director of the Mongolian Philharmonic, and, and she was here, uh, and we met because we had been Facebook friends, and, uh, and I realized when she got here that, um, you know, there's some cultural um, 
things that she needed to to some help with. So I kind of became a fixer for her while while she was here. And and this is how the relationship develops. It did. I mean, I I didn't do it with any intention of getting myself to to Mongolia. I just had a, I've always had a strong interest in Mongolia, um, in the culture and. Uh, so it's just kind of happened. <laughs> and I, I imagine this is connected to the sister city relationship with Denver, which is often an artistic collaboration. <clears throat> well, yes, yes and no. I mean, it actually kind of developed outside of the sister city thing, although I was aware of the sister city relationship. The ensemble is made up of traditional Mongolian instruments, uh, not a typical Western orchestra that you'd uh, usually write for, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's actually a mixture of, of traditional Western European instruments and the and the Mongolian traditional instruments. So there's both in the ensemble. But uh, yeah, writing writing for the Mora and Hur, which is the two stringed, you know, kind of the primary instrument of Mongolia. I mean, like when I met with the uh, deputy. Uh, 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 prime minister, you know, this it's like the equivalent of the vice president of Mongolia. You know, he schooled me for about five minutes on the history of the Moran Hur going back thousands of years. I mean, even prior to Genghis Khan. This is both the name of the ensemble, but of an instrument. It's it's a horse-headed headed stringed fiddle, instrument. You know, fiddle. if you will. Yeah, that they hold upright. So it's kind of like they bow it like a cello and it's two strings. The The, the players are Completely of a virtuoso level. I mean, of a very high virtuoso level. This is certainly uh, one of the best ensembles I've ever listened to or worked with in, in my lifetime as a musician. And so you had to write something for an ensemble with instruments that were fairly new to you. Yeah. Uh, why don't we listen to a few of the textures in the piece? Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us more about what we're hearing here? Yeah, so the Moran Hur instrument itself is kind of like having a huge string section of first violins and second violins. And then you actually have a few cellos and a few basses as well. The basses are still constructed like it's an oversized Moran Hur. Um, and they used to only be two strings as well. I noticed all there they've added a third string to the bass for didn't really get a chance to find out what that transition had been. The more challenging thing for me to write for was actually they have a wind instrument called the Everbury, which is like this serpent-looking thing that's sort of a mixture of clarinet and saxophone. And say it again. It's called an Everbury. Everbury. Yeah, and these are, of course, the English words for them, not the Mongolian words. But uh, And it's it's a really, really beautiful instrument. And, and uh, so I had to, you know, really study a bunch of videos and I had some DVDs of the of the orchestra and and, and stuff so I you know looked at those but even more difficult was there's a koto type instrument uh and then there's also a hammer dulcimer like a huge like a chumbalum type hammer dulcimer and those two instruments it was like I had spent so much time researching those in order to write for them 
When you say a kodo type instrument, can, yeah. can you describe that for the uninitiated? Well, the kodo is like the Japanese, like a it kind of looks like a like a, a harp that you've laying down, you know, and it has a bunch of strings you pluck on it. And so uh, the, the Mongolians have a version of that, as the Chinese do. And then the hammer dulcimer is, is a huge thing. And I mean, these again, these players are all like these amazing virtuoso players. I mean, we're not talking about um, you know kind of folk musicians that hang out in the countryside. I mean, that exists as well, but these people are highly trained. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're talking about an unusual collaboration between a Denver composer and uh, an orchestra that is made up in part of traditional Mongolian instruments in Mongolia. Um, And uh, I want to ask you, um, Thomas Blomster, about the name of the piece, Postcards to Mongolia? Postcards of what? Well, I couldn't say postcards from Mongolia because I'd never been there. <laughs> so so this was kind of my impressions of Mongolia from afar, if you will. It's like I'm sending my postcards to you of what I think Mongolia is. And, you know, I've often heard from people how similar Colorado is uh, topographically to Mongolia. That's true. Yeah. How How so? Well, it's it's a you know Ulaanbaatar shares a similar elevation to a Denver. It's surrounded by mountains, which is a little different from us. Um, you know, you have the steppes, uh, which is which are great, but they're they're not nearly as uh, wide open as the eastern plains of Colorado. You see mountains uh, a lot more, just kind of all around you. You'd never met these musicians in person before. No. How challenging was it to rehearse a brand new piece of of music with them? And I suppose work around the language barrier in time for the premiere. Yeah. So the language language barrier was uh, significant in terms of uh, the Mongolian language is like nothing you've ever heard. I mean, even the way you formulate sounds in your mouth is like so different from anything that I'd ever heard. But there were um, several people in the orchestra that spoke English actually quite well. Um, and so I would use use them when I really needed a translation. A lot of the orchestra, you know, knew a smattering of English words. Um but really the bigger difficulty was from my end just kind of adapting to the culture and not knowing if, you know, quite how it operates. So like rehearsals in Mongolia are completely different setup from the way it is here. How so? Well, you know, there's no, I mean, like I'm like a union guy here, you know. So it's <laughs> like it's the rehearsals two hours. We stop right at two hours, you know, or it's two and a half hours. That's what the call is, you know. But it starts on time too. And these rehearsals never started on time. I never had any idea when my piece would be up or not. I mean, eventually, like at the dress rehearsal, I just went to my little dressing room, lay down on the couch and took a nap because I figured, you know, they'll come find me when they need me. And they did. And they did. So, But I suppose it turned out fairly well. We can hear a bit more of the piece because this is from its premiere in Ulaanbaatar, a particularly lively section. If I were hosting a Mongolian news program, I'd want that to be the music behind the headlines, <laughs> I think. Uh, it, it sounds like those are tricky rhythms, even for a Western orchestra to play. Yeah, and that was a, that was a challenge that, uh, that they really rose to, I thought, um, because it was different. I mean, I've got mixed meters going on. It's like a couple measures of 6-8, and then I'm 
measure of seven eight is in a regular kind of repeating pattern, and uh, and then the melody that goes over the top of that is like so polyrhythmic in places. I mean, the the concertmaster of the Morin who was a pretty proficient arranger and composer himself. I mean, he just came up to me at one point. He pointed to these rhythms in the score and he said, "You know, what are these? How do you play these?" Huh. <laughs> But they so, managed to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They held a rehearsal on their own at one point because they wanted to get it down. So, you know, like the first couple of rehearsals were pretty messy and then it really came together. But that's what I saw with several other ensembles, too. So the rehearsal process from my Western point of view was it like... It seemed chaotic. Yeah. It seemed yet. really chaotic. But the product was always like fantastic. What was the setting for the premiere? Describe it. It was this beautiful... Um, uh, uh, opera house, like a 500-seat opera house on the main square in Ulaanbaatar. It was built by the Russians. It was built by, it was designed by a German uh, POW from the Second World War. Huh. Uh, really, really beautiful theater. I mean, the kind of thing you just don't find here. Um, it, was, it was great. You can see, however, that with the Soviet state having left 30 years ago, that maintenance is an issue. How did you perceive that? Cracks in just, the walls, or just yeah, that kind of stuff. You know, like I was standing on the on the you know, on backstage at one point, and I was looking down at the floor, which was pretty rough, and and I noticed, oh, I can see down to the next floor. Okay, that's a little <laughs> unnerving. What would you say was the most surprising thing about your visit to Mongolia? Oh, I, I mean, I guess I mean it's it's not the first you know, foreign country I've been to by any shot of the imagination. And and it's not even the first, you know, quote, third world country I've been to. Or developing but, world. Yeah, developing world. But I, I wasn't quite prepared for some of that. So there was just these odd mixtures of like, you know, stuff that was so first world. I mean, good restaurants. It's a big city. It's, you know, it's really very international and everything. And then there'd be kind of third world aspects that you run into and go, oh. <laughs> what was another example? Well, you know, toilet paper was kind of an issue. <laughs> All right. The life of a traveling musician. Do you think the piece will ever be played here? Well, it depends on, uh, you know, the Moran Horan Ensemble does occasionally tour. Oh. And it depends on whether we can get them here. Thanks for being with us. You bet. Composer Thomas Blomster is music director of the Colorado Chamber Orchestra in Denver. And he wrote for and conducted the Moran Horan Ensemble in Mongolia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For an artist, it's a big deal to land a spot in the Venice Biennale in Italy. Colorado Springs sculptor Senga Nengudi is one of just 17 American artists in this year's event. Nengudi is in her 70s, and her career has exploded in recent years. Her work, which often uses pantyhose and other everyday objects, has been collected by the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles. We spoke earlier this year. Welcome to the program. Thank you. As I said, you work a lot with pantyhose. You stretch them, you fill them with objects, transform them into all manner of webs, lines and shapes that sometimes extend from gallery walls. What drew you to them as a medium? Um, I like using um, items that have been used, uh, found objects, uh, everyday items, um, such as... uh, 
masking tape and other things like that. I like to kind of give them a second life to allow people to see things in a second light and to allow um, the materials to uh, uh, go beyond themselves. I like to say in into a poetic self, mm. uh, transform. And, and uh, uh, I do that because I want everyone to see the transformative quality of everything, particularly human beings. And so with the uh, nylon pantyhose, uh, I initially um, started working with those after the birth of my two children. Uh, I was amazed at how the body uh, expanded uh, when you're pregnant and then came back into shape afterwards, pretty much into shape <laughs> afterwards. And uh, it fascinated me, the sense of body. And I've always been interested in in movement and, and body. And so I started filling it with a variety of things, but it wasn't satisfying until I started filling them with sand, which had kind of the sensual quality of the body. And of course, pantyhose have the ability to flex and to form. And so mm -hmm. there are often very organic shapes, body-like shapes mm -hmm. in your work. What, what was your mm -hmm. reaction when you learned that you'd been invited to be a part of the Venice Biennale, which is, um, to draw on a sports metaphor, really like the World Series of Art? It's the big show, you know? And I was shocked. I was absolutely, I, I, that was never entered my mind, to be honest. Never entered my mind, was never on my trajectory. Oh. Uh, so I was so amazed and excited and nervous and uh, in a state of shock for a while. Do you get nominated? How, how do you get? Yes, you have to, you have to be, um, yes, you, you have to be invited. Okay. So it's a big deal. And I a, <laughs> I want to talk yes. about the work you've created for the BNLA. I understand that mm -hmm. uh, the pieces integrate, in some cases, air conditioner components. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I uh, was most fortunate. I uh, Well, actually, this year has been a wonderful year. The beginning of the year, uh, I had a Robert Rauschenberg um, uh, residency in Florida, and that allowed me to work on this piece. And while there, um, I visited a, a metal kind of place, you know, where they, they have recycled metals. And I came upon these air conditioner components. And they're just amazing because they're made out of uh, copper and, and very sturdy and very rough and, in a sense, very dangerous. So I really wanted to uh, couple the nylons with this particular material uh, to show, well, I, I hate to, you know, put a meaning to it because I prefer people when they see the piece, then they pull out their own meaning, uh, given their own experiences. But um, I really wanted to play with the fragility of the nylons against this this hard, uh, everlasting material. Also showing, you know, that combined in certain ways, the fragile can be very strong. Hmm. The air conditioner components make me think of climate change, but that may be an uh -huh. overlay that you don't intend. I, I don't know. I don't know. 
Uh, no, but uh, I, uh, I no, that wasn't in my consciousness. Okay. <laughs> but that's what I'm, I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That's what's so exciting about art that you as an individual, when you have an interaction with a piece of art, then you bring yourself to it. And then you have your own conversation with that piece. No matter what the artist may have intended, you can uh, enrich and enliven the piece yourself by simply you know, bringing your own self to it. My guest is Senga Nengudi, the Colorado Springs artist who uh, has the distinction of being one of just 17 American artists at this year's Venice Biennale in Italy. That happens every two years in Venice, and it's a real honor to be a part of it. And uh, Senga, how has it been to make your art in Colorado Springs? You know, your, your work is in MoMA in New York, Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles, and there you are in the Springs. <laughs> yes, um, it's wonderful. Uh, I'm also in the collection of the Tate and some other places as well, <clears throat> some other major museums, which is extraordinary to me. Um, I was born in Chicago, and it sounds like a blues song, born in Chicago, raised in L.A. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I was raised in Los Angeles and uh, spent time in New York. And when my children were teens, uh, preteens, we decided to move to Colorado Springs, my husband and myself, our whole family, uh, because we I kind of hit a block wall there, and I felt as though I needed a change, and we wanted to uh, be in a smaller community. So when we moved here, it allowed me to do my work. I like to say without someone looking over my shoulder, I could develop um, ideas freely as opposed to them being... Um, critiqued, so to speak. So it was a really good environment to raise our kids and to kind of have, you know, quiet kind of existence. And so I do my work here in Colorado Springs, and then I go everyplace else oh. uh, to, you know, to show it, to exhibit it, and so on. It strikes me that as someone who's very interested in shape and form, You've got some giant shapes and forms right next to you in Colorado Springs mm-hmm. in the in the form of, of mountains. I wonder if the topography mm-hmm. there is ever inspiration. Oh, it is very much so. Um, <laughs> uh, the the mountains are magnificent, especially when it snows. It's it's like a fairy tale kind of place, and they look like huge altars. Uh, so every single day they look different. Sometimes they have kind of a Japanese kind of feel to them with clouds and mist and so on. And then other days they're just totally majestic with blue skies and billowing clouds. So yes, I'm inspired absolutely every single day from the landscape. What materials have you not yet worked with that you either hope to or plan to? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> Is there anything you wouldn't work with? Like, have you skipped over items because you, you just can't find a poetic second life in them? 
Well, I don't believe that's true. I think everything has, a, you know, a poetic life to it, a second life, uh, an ability to transcend. So in that regard, no. Do you share that view of the world um, or does it extend that view of the world to people? So you, oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, you, you don't see objects yeah. as throwaway. It makes me wonder if, no. if you don't see people as throwaway either. That's how I relate to it, very much so. You know, um, there are voiceless people. There are people that aren't considered. And um, it's important for the 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 general public as well as the person that's feeling that themselves that things can go higher and and fuller and richer in their lives and uh nothing should just be decided oh okay that's it boom you know it's over that person has hit a new low or something no there's there's always the ability to transcend and you've hit a, a new high in your career, having landed a spot at the Venice Biennale. Is it is it a tough mm-hmm. act to follow now? Can you go higher? Uh, yes, it is a tough act to follow. Uh, but, you know, as I've been speaking on this poetic self and transcending, there's always higher, just like there's always lower. <laughs> there's, there's an African uh, proverb that I really, um, I, I can't say verbatim, but there's this issue that uh, there's no bottom, as, as also there is no top. Mm-hmm. So it can only, you know, continue. Boy, that's both terrifying and inspiring. <laughs> why don't it is? Why don't we leave on that on that dualistic <laughs> note, Sangha? Okay, okay. Colorado Springs sculptor Sangha Ngudi. She's one of seventeen artists from the United States represented at this year's Venice Biennale in Italy. If you happen to be there, it runs through the end of November. You can see some of her work at cprnews.org. Finally today, the husband and wife duo Big Samir and Asia Black have explored the hip-hop and soul connection for more than a decade. Performing as The Reminders, they've shared concert bills with acts like Snoop Dogg and Nas. The couple's busy tour schedule often has them longing to be back home in Colorado Springs. Recorded in the CPR Performance Studio, here's Coming Home.
The Reminders from Colorado Springs, made up of husband and wife Big Samir and Asia Black. The song is called Coming Home. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. Lonely, deep and cold. It makes me want-